What we're doing today is remembering the events of 10 years ago and considering their continuing significance. And our music moves from the haunting, almost mournful adagio for strings by Barber to the affirmation that love is the last word, that God's love is the last word in our final hymn. We've altered the prayers today, and we've had a plenary Sunday school forum reflecting on what we need for human thriving. But it's also important that what we're doing today is what we always do, gathering around the table for transformation and sustenance and challenge and the assurance that we are a forgiven people. Our scriptures today put forgiveness front and center, and not just the kind of forgiveness that's hard enough, the kind that leads to reconciliation that involves confession of wrongdoing, but the forgiveness of those who believe they neither need our forgiveness nor whom appear to want it, let alone look for reconciliation. This kind of forgiveness in particular is a tricky, tricky thing. It takes time. And every one of us is a work in progress, so our forgiveness of others is often incomplete on any given day. But it's just such forgiveness that Jesus is talking about to Peter. He's laid out a process. We heard about it last week of when, when someone gives offense, take them on one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, take witnesses. If that doesn't work, go to the church. And if that doesn't work, drop it. Let it go. Forget it somehow. Peter wants to know how many times he has to forgive. Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, 77 times. Go on forgiving. Why? Why is forgiveness so important when there is no reasonable and holy hope for reconciliation in this world or in our lifetime? And the answer has something to do with power. Just as he did when he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of God, so when he talks of forgiveness, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth is bound on he in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. When we do not forgive, we are in some sense less than free, bound. We're in the thrall of another person or another power. Have you ever had a personal enemy? Someone out to get you, destroy your life or your livelihood or your marriage? Someone who's after your job and starts a whispering campaign in the office? Then you know what it's like to be in the thrall of another. Have you ever been put in the position of being a scapegoat, taking the blame for some wrong that you did not commit? Then you know what it's like to be in the thrall of another. Have you ever been humiliated, perhaps raped or robbed and resented your oppressor and found your time and waking hours thinking about revenge? Then you know what it's like to be in the thrall of another. When we give over our thoughts, our imaginations, our creativity, our life to another in such ways, then we're not free. And we simply have to figure out how to forgive, how to let it go, or at least begin the process of trying to want to forgive. Some hurts are deeply personal. And so it was and still is to some degree for those who are mourning those they've lost, people they loved from September 11th, 10 years ago, to deeply personal for the first responders and volunteers who've lost their health 
as a result of their compassion and their work in those early hours and days. And there are others that are burdened by the guilt that survivors often carry, and along with it, a hatred of those who perpetrated the evil down on that day. And every one of us and others throughout the world have found our lives changed. And it's not so much just about inconvenience when we travel. It's a fundamental shift in, uh, in sense of safety, an uninvited reality of fear seeping into our lives. And what happens to us if we're not alert and wakeful and are paying attention to what's going on in our souls or our spirits is that we can find ourselves nurturing grievance and allowing stony, hard lumps of hatred to grow in our hearts. We don't know what's happening. It bypasses our intellectual processes. It bypasses our reason. I think about myself, of course I don't hate Muslims. And I know that Islam is a religion of peace. But I can find my bile rising when I see the smug and hateful assurance of any kind of fundamentalist who is trying to impose a view of the world that I believe oppressive and I do not share. It might happen when I'm listening to a Christian who thinks that evolution or global warming are a hoax or a different kind of fundamentalist who would hold our entire economy hostage to a vision and set of principles that they wish to impose, whatever the cost, on everyone else. Such was the work of many of the demagogues who used violence to impose their will on others, the revolutionary communists early in the 20th century. And in fact, it's the same thing with the Muslim fundamentalists who believe that they must impose their vision of Islam as the last word of God and create uh, Muslim nations where everyone follows the word of God given in the Quran, and they know that nobody is free until that happens, and so they allow for the possibility of violence in support of that goal of making everyone live under this last word of God. Their passion is fueled by resentment, resentment that has been nurtured and nursed, and often those resentments are legitimate. It's been proposed that Islamic fundamentalism was, that espouses violence. You often find in the writings of this chap, Saeed Qutub, who was something of a martyr in the eyes of many. He, he it was born in Egyptian prisons under the government of Anwar Sadat. He was a man seeing as betraying the Arab cause, making peace with Israel. He was the kind of Muslim that would allow converse with democratic and Western societies. And the resentment just grows and grows and grows. I may not think that hate is infecting my spirit, but it probably is, probably is when I find my bile rising about things over which I have no control. And so it's becoming part of the cycle of violence that seems stoppable only by a savior. Well, we have one. And he says, forgive. And bind yourselves from all that resentment of injuries, injuries shallow and deep, Lay down your hatred, which may have become a comfortable friend to you. Maybe it shapes your political and personal choices, your opinions and beliefs, your view of others. But it's really a way in which you've given up power. In which you've given up power to another and put yourself, perhaps without knowing it, in the thrall of your enemy. That's what Jesus' parable of this slave who's forgiven his debts and then goes about condemning others and demanding they pay and throwing them in prison. 
In the end, he's thrown into the torture chambers, a prison entirely of his own making because of his unwillingness or inability to forgive. We bind ourselves when we accept anything less than our freedom. So, all well and good, but the forces of wickedness which rebel against the ways of God are powerful. And the idea of forgiving someone who not only believes he has no need of forgiveness, but has every intention of continuing to act in ways that require us to forgive seems insane. No one wants to be a doormat or a doormat for Christ. When Jesus canceled, turn the other cheek, he wasn't saying lay down and take it. It was a call to nonviolent resistance. Whenever we renew our baptismal covenant, we promise that we will persevere in resisting evil, presumably evil in ourselves and evil in others. This business of forgiveness in such circumstances is really complicated, and at some level I don't even know what it means. But in an imperfect world, it does not mean pretending things are other than they are. It doesn't mean that we suddenly see someone who is out to get us as a lovely, peaceful person. Forgiving another person is particularly hard because it requires naming the actions that require forgiveness, looking at evil and deciding how to respond, looking at the insanity of a closed theological system, a destructive force for evil, and naming it for what it is, something that must be resisted with every fiber of our beings because it dehumanizes everyone in the name of alleged freedom and it perverts a religion of peace. The hijackings and killings of 9-11 were criminal and they were acts of war, and our response has to be sober, especially when it's a violent response, especially when we seek to find and kill those who make no secret of their plotting further atrocities against us. But our response must also recognize the reality of this whole cycle of sin. In heaven, there will be no prisons, but here there must be means of regulating the behavior of those who are destructive of others and cannot regulate their own behavior. There will be no war in heaven, but here the forces that would invade and enslave in the name of freedom, alleged freedom, must be resisted. I've told you in the past of a lunchtime conversation years ago took place, I was part of, in the, at the Yale Divinity School. And all seminary conversations are incredibly intense about the most, whatever we're talking about right now, is the most important thing. And we must get really worked up about it. But this one, this one I remember this many years later, and I've shared it with some, some of you before, we were talking about the German resistance and the plots to kill Adolf Hitler. And we were asking whether or not That was a good thing. Was it a good thing to try and kill Hitler, or was it completely and utterly wrong against the commandments of God, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not kill? And some people said, no, it was the right thing to do, and it was a good thing to do. It was necessary for the well-being of of the many. And others said, no, the will of God is clear. We do not take up arms under any circumstances. Pacifism is the only way, and it has to be worked out some other and nonviolent way. I was of the opinion then, and of the opinion today, that many of the decisions we make in a sinful and broken world are the 
decisions we have to take. And in that sense, they're the best decisions we can take, but that doesn't make them right in the sight of God. It doesn't make them build a world of justice and peace necessarily. And I think of, um, I'm glad that Osama bin Laden and many of the other leaders of Al-Qaeda have been found and killed. And I'm slightly shocked to hear myself say that. And I believe these deaths are necessary in a war. But I also know that our drones engender collateral damage way beyond the civilians that we kill, damage that will fuel resentments of us and our ways for generations to come, damage that will keep the cycle going of humiliation and revenge. And the only thing that breaks it is forgiveness. This is neither a chess game nor a football game. It's not time for fist pumping and cheering. It's, it's not an area for triumphant glee. It's something else. It's acknowledgement of sin. What St. Augustine said, when you sin, sin boldly. Do what you have to do, but don't claim that it's in accord with the ultimate intent and purposes of God. Do what you have to do courageously and forthrightly, but don't make it good. Don't say God is on our side because our violence is good and their violence is not. I'm not sure what forgiveness means of our enemies when we're trying to kill them. But it means at least that we won't spend our whole lives plotting revenge, imagining how delicious that will be. It means we won't be gleeful about sin. It means we won't let the actions of the misguided make us never again enter a tall building, make us live in fear, make us refuse to befriend a Muslim. Forgiving our enemies at the very least means doing whatever we have to do to prevent the violence against us without returning hatred with hatred, without returning evil with evil, and without claiming that doing what we believe is necessary is therefore right in the sight of God. This can sound, this can sound unpatriotic, this hard gospel, but it need not be so. I'm reminded of the time uh, in 82, I think it was, when Robert Runcie gave a service of thanksgiving for at the end of the Falklands War. And he said something similar to what I'm saying today, and he said we must pray for our enemies. And Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister at the time, got quite shirty about the whole thing, as she had a way of doing, and said he wasn't being patriotic. And he wasn't being grateful for the victory. He wasn't being triumphant enough for her taste. And I think we can give thanks for our soldiers. We can give thanks for those in the intelligence community who've done such work. We can give thanks for the courage and the bravery that's required in this resisting of evil. We can give extraordinary thanks for the benefits of democracy and this country and the fact among, perhaps chief among them, that we are free to worship in peace and without fear, not true everywhere in the world. And we can be proud of who we are and where we live without being gleeful at violence, without sinning 
on top of sinning. We can do what we have to do and still repent. We can strive to forgive those who do us wrong over and over, even as we act to prevent being victimized by further wrongdoing and seeking forgiveness continually for the wrong that we do and means that forgiveness is a gift that frees us from the power of the enemy. When we forgive, we claim the freedom to live secure with the only security that matters, secure in God's love for us and for all of creation. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.